Apple presents Meet the Author. Uh, before we kick things off, we actually have a really cool video I want to show you guys. Let's take a look at this video real quick. My name is Neil Preston, and I was the only embedded tour photographer for Led Zeppelin. Now you can experience Led Zeppelin like never before through Neil Preston's eyes in a stunning, immersive new digital book. Led Zeppelin Sound and Fury puts Zeppelin at your fingertips with over 250 photographs, many released here for the first time. New audio interviews. This photo of Jimmy is one of my absolute, absolute favorites. In-depth new interactive media. I was very fortunate to have been given the access that I was given. Go backstage and further with 80 never-before-seen original proof sheets and rare memorabilia. Discover the intimate access to Zeppelin that only their photographer had in a one-of-a-kind digital experience. Led Zeppelin Sound and Fury by Neil Preston. Available exclusively on the iBookstore. All right, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, editor-in-chief at Relics Magazine, Josh Barron, and tonight's guest, author of the book, Led Zeppelin's Sound and Fury, available now on the iBookstore, photographer, Neil Preston. Welcome, thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, one of my I'm 35 years old, and I'm the editor of Relics, and one of my joys of my work is being able to work with writers and photographers that worked in what I call the golden age of music journalism. And I would say that's roughly 1968 to maybe 1978. This was a time when, <laughs> when they were given access to artists, that artists trusted these writers and photographers to represent them in a fair and meaningful way. That's obviously gone by the wayside today, but there was a time when that existed. During that time, there were a lot of great photographers, and a lot of those photographers made some amazing live imagery. Out of those great photographers, there was fewer that got to actually go on tour with bands or develop a relationship with bands. And a lot of times, there would be that one band that that one photographer took these amazing photographs of. There were even fewer of those famous photographers that got to do so with a lot of famous bands. And this guy right here next to me is one of them. Not only was he the guy that was the official photographer for Led Zeppelin, but Neil also has unparalleled imagery of the Allman Brothers, of The Who, of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, of Fleetwood Mac, and of countless others, including, oh, Bruce Springsteen, Queen, uh, Hart, you name it, Neil shot it. So I'm very excited to be here with him today. We've gotten to do a lot of work together. Recently, you know, we were going to do this shoot, and one of the things Neil said is like, is, is it cool if I shoot in film? I don't want to shoot in digital. I want to shoot in film. And my point saying is that Neil's an old school guy. Even today, Neil's an old school guy. So my first question for you, Neil, is you're an old school guy. Why are you doing such a new school book? Oh, that's a good question. Um, we all know that the, um, the direction that publishing is, taken, is taking currently is uh, the digital direction. And um, this was a way to produce a book that, that I felt would be experiential in nature and would uh, allow the, uh, the reader to, to really come behind the velvet rope, if you will, and uh, 
experience being with Led Zeppelin, being backstage, working for a band like this, uh, a band who is notorious for being very cloistered and very private and not inviting a lot of people into their inner circle, if, if anybody. Uh, so um, I decided that uh, this was the, the way to go and no one had really done a book like this before certainly not on, on a subject like this and uh, sometimes you have to take a leap of faith and, and blaze a new trail so uh, that's what I tried to do you know it it when looking at the book and I've spent uh, thanks uh, a good a good bit of time with it you know you would think with this age of technology oh this book you know something like this has been done before this with all this interactiveness, with being able to pinch and you know expand proof sheets and look at video and audio embedded, but the reality is, is it hasn't been done because it's actually far harder than people realize to create this kind of interactive book. So I'm curious, you know, the the because this is not, I mean, yes, it's a book, but it's the book redefined. So I'm curious, what were the the challenges that you faced in trying to put together? A book of this this magnitude. Well, there are there are a lot of challenges. Um, a traditional book, you work with an art director who helps you with the layout, the content, uh, everything everything about the book and how it appears. You're working with an art director. On a digital book, uh, you're working with a software developer. the The challenges are are many because when you're working with software and electronic files, it's not like, uh, you know, you don't get a copy of the galleys and you proofread them and uh, everything is different. And uh, there's a domino effect where if you want to add some text, let's say, it affects other pages and uh, there are limits to what the software can handle in terms of the size of the files. and. Uh, as as I as I said to you earlier, I know enough about this stuff to be dangerous, uh, so I have to leave leave it to the uh, software developers to help guide me. We worked with a uh, a, a company in the UK called Brandwidth, uh, who who basically operate as my de facto art directors. Um, but it was uh, it 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 was a long time coming. We knew there was going to be a learning curve. It was a little steeper than I had envisioned, and um, it, I, I can't believe it's it's here. I'll tell you, it's like being pregnant for 18 months. It took a, a big push to get it out. <laughs> uh, you know, you've done this. You've said that you've really done this for the fans to sort of let them into the inner sanctum, but also to really sort of you know show them how much is you. You know, this photo behind me, I can tell you that I had pinned up in my room, my bedroom in eighth grade, when I was listening to the Led Zeppelin box set. Um, and, it, and it's iconic. Um, and a lot of fans have seen your Zeppelin work throughout the years. How much, for fans, how much is new in, in the book? Well, there are uh, about 100 photographs that have not been uh, previously published. There are 80 contact sheets that uh, are reprinted or reproduced in their original form. And it's funny, I was, I was, I was told that uh, a couple of days ago that uh, I should, I should uh, educate people on what a contact sheet is. And I said, you gotta be kidding. 
but I guess there are people that in the, 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 a certain generations that have never seen a contact sheet. That's a contact sheet, a black and white contact sheet with one, two, three, four, five, six strips of negatives or seven, four, five, whatever. Strips of negatives and uh, they're exposed uh, in uh, the, the negatives are uh, developed. They're cut into strips. They're put on a piece of photographic paper in a dark room. Uh, light exposes the paper and that's a proof sheet. Uh, these days you, you work with digital files on Adobe Lightroom or something like that. It's a different kind of a workflow. If you look at a proof sheet, and this is a good example, you can see, you kind of see what I'm thinking when I'm shooting. How I went from John Bonham over to Robert Plant. You can see, you can see a photographer's framing. Uh, there's a lot of information, if you know what to look for, that can be gleaned off, uh, off a proof sheet. I'm fascinated to see other photographers' proof sheets. Um, it's one thing to see the famous photograph, you know, whether it's of a musician or a celebrity, a soldier or whatever. It's another thing to see the frames before it and the frames after it. Um, and to me, it's fascinating to see other photographers' proof sheets. And this is the kind of thing that a fan isn't going to be able to see unless they're in my, in my house having dinner and going down the basement and looking at uh, proof sheets. And, and there's some amazing ones in there. I think one of the coolest parts of the book is that it allows you to be your own sort of detective and find images that they haven't highlighted that are in there. And you're like, wait, isn't that, oh, that's Bill Graham right there. Oh, that's Cameron Crowe on the airplane. Yes, um, that is. <laughs> um, you know, I pulled up this particular page because I think this quote by Danny Goldberg, who was the band's publicist for Swan Song, was brought on as the band's publicist. Um, it, it captures so much of their attitude. And the quote is, they weren't famous by accident, they were famous on purpose. And I'm just wondering, having spent as much time as you have around the band, you know, speak to that quote a little bit about how they carried themselves, what they did. Well, uh, I, I wrote a lot of, well, all, the entire book I wrote other than the, uh, the, the quotes, uh, the little essays from other musicians. Uh, and I use a word called swagger. And there was a lot of swagger involved with these guys. Um, and Danny is correct. They, they were famous on purpose. And they loved being rock stars. They knew they were. There was a confidence uh, around each one of these guys that that kind of transcended music. Um, there, there was one time when uh, I had to shoot a photo of Robert Plant uh, for, a, for a magazine cover, and for some reason I wanted to do it by a lake. I don't r recall why, but I was, and we were in Chicago, but it wasn't gonna be Lake Michigan. I wanted to go somewhere private. And uh, the, the, the fellow from the record company, Daniel Marcus, loaded us into a car and we drove 50 miles outside of Chicago, four of us, just so I could do this picture of Robert by a lake. And uh, on the way back, we were hungry and went into a McDonald's. And uh, Robert had this uh, fringe jacket on, I recall. We all walked in and you could tell the french fries stopped frying most of the people didn't know who he was, but they knew it was somebody famous and someone important. And I, I remember the odd looks we got from people, and finally some little kid runs up to Robert and says, are you a football player? And Robert thought this was the greatest uh, question he'd ever been asked in his life. 
because he's, he's and he, he assumed, of course, that the kid meant English football, soccer. But whether or not uh, it was English or American, Robert loved it, and and he he it was the happiest day of his of his life, or so it seemed. But that's the kind of charisma that that uh, these guys all had, and uh, back then. You know, we're we're flying across America, taking no prisoners, in in your own private airplanes, nonetheless. In their own private airplanes, in their own chartered private airplanes. <laughs> um, you know, there's a quote here, and I've and I've asked this of other photographers I've interviewed over the years, and and the point is, is that yes, you were given the access, and a lot of other photographers were given the access to make great images, and you had to be talented, you had to know how to use a camera, no question. But an equal part of the equation had to be, did they feel comfortable around you? Did you either make yourself invisible? Did you, did you blend in? Were you cool? Were you not cool? Did you, you know, jump through the hoops that they, that they asked of you? That it well, wasn't just about being, because you're not shooting pictures all the time. You're probably shooting pictures half the time or even less than half the time. Right. Uh, it's a given that when you're hired to do a job like this, and there, there, are, there have not been a lot of people in the world who have had a job like this. But when you're hired, it's a given that you can cut the mustard work-wise and photographically. But the other, question, the other elements that go into doing this job, as you say, are non-photographic. And it's all about, are you trustworthy? Can you be invisible when necessary? Can you be, uh, are you gonna have a big mouth? Can you keep your mouth shut? Are you going to act like you're the fifth member of the band? Because if you're going to act like the fifth member of the band, you're going to be out on your butt. Toot sweet. And, um, and those are defining uh, questions and defining answers when it comes to um, doing a job like this, especially with a band as notorious as this band was for uh, being private and... Uh, letting only a little bit of the world in that they wanted to let in when they wanted to let in. With that being said, you know, a lot of the stories that I've read, and this is, this is one of them, where, <laughs> where, where Bonzo forces you to get naked in front of a large group of people, demands that you get naked. There's another story, as told by Daniel Marcus, where... He rips his brand new glasses that he's had made off his face and smashes them. He then sees him again, and Daniel and then Danny takes, takes him, his own glasses takes off. Takes his own glasses off and steps on his own glasses. Um, there's there's stories of them trashing your hotel room instantly, or just trashing things that belong to other people. It, it seemed like you and some of the others on tour were getting hazed, and that they they off. It seemed to say that you know. We, you know, we're going to tell you to jump, and you're going to say how high, and you're going to just deal with it, whether you like it or not. That's a good way of putting it, hazed. I never thought about it that way. Um, there are times you'd be tested, certainly. I mean, Daniel talks about the incident with, the, with uh, John Bonham and, and the, the smashing his glasses up. I was standing right next to Danny when that happened. Uh, and if, if you get a rise out of him, then your, your life is over. Do you um, mess with this guy right here? Uh, on that day, it would have been okay. But other days, no. Um, it, it, it's, it's a little bit like a fraternity, I think. And a hazing is a good analogy. 
uh, when John Bonham comes up to you on an airplane and, and, and says, let's see your effing knob, you know what's coming. You're going to show it to him whether you want to or not. And I, and, uh, I would rather have not. But, but you know what? Three security guys later and a feeble attempt at keeping them off me, there I am laying on the ground um, for all the world to see. And, you know, Jimmy Page standing in the, in the doorway going, well, interesting. Um, what do you do? Uh, you, you, you know, I was actually more upset that they ripped my winter coat because uh, it's cold outside when we landed. Uh, stuff like that, uh, you know, that's not the only time some, something, uh, of, you know, I've been thrown in swimming pools by people and, uh, you know, the odd, the odd incident here or there, but uh, that's, that's like boys club type stuff. Doesn't matter who the boys are. I am a, oh, there's a picture. I was looking for, you mentioned acting like a fifth member of the band, and when you read this book, it seems like the fifth member of the band is Peter Grant. Uh, and Peter was really, it seemed to be, the gatekeeper of all things Led Zeppelin, and that part of you getting a gig was that you passed muster with Peter Grant. Anyone that worked directly with the band within the inner circle had to sort of get past Peter and his approval, his, his nose as it's yeah. described. D definitely. Um I don't know why Peter took a liking to me or trusted me or didn't trust me. Uh, I, he, he was the sole gatekeeper. I mean, obviously, you know, four band members have opinions, uh, but when push came to shove, Peter Grant was, was the Lord High Executioner, if you will. Right. And it I mean, can you just talk about his, his personality? I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm 35, I'm a Led Zeppelin fan, but I didn't know a whole heck of a lot about Peter Grant. I feel like I intimately know Peter Grant after reading this book and hearing stories about him. He was a for massive man that mm -hmm. was very scary. He, he was a big guy in personality and in girth. Um, you know, we've all heard the stories about the band. We've heard stories about Peter... You know, thuggery. Uh, he came from um, uh, from an era where uh, music managers, uh, you know, the, the business was a little different, and uh, justice was uh, handed down in a certain way, if you will. I, I always found the guy very um, amiable, and he was very, very good to me. I've I. Yeah, there's some stuff I saw go down that was a little left of center, but um, but if you know, he was a street guy. He was a guy of the street, and he had uh, six cents about things. And if he was going to uh, say yes, it was to to you uh, working for them. It was because he had a feeling that you were going to be okay. If he was going to say no, it's because he had a feeling you weren't going to be okay. I, I don't know how else to put it. Uh, you know, I think when people hear that you were on tour with Led Zeppelin, they think of mayhem, excess, the, the epitome of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The realities that we hear about in this book, visually, audibly, visually, are that it was not always that crazy. And that, in fact, as this picture shows, and as you talk about, 
This is often the reality of being backstage with Led Zeppelin. Yeah, well, this, this is the reality of being backstage with Led Zeppelin or a lot of other bands. And, uh, you know, I experienced more sex, drugs, and rock and roll with REO Speedwagon, probably. Uh, thank you. Um, the, what I love about this photo is uh, you see Peter in the background and some roadie chatting up a couple of the girls. Um, and, uh, and Robert just waiting, waiting for showtime. That's, that's reality of what it's like. Um, with any band, there's a certain amount of shenanigans that go on. Just as much with any band I've ever worked with as with Led Zeppelin. They, they were not the, the sole keeper of the flame of partying or not partying. Uh, there, there's, no, there's not as much going on, uh, I think, as you, as you would think or as the stories would have led you to believe, at least not when, when it wasn't behind closed doors. With, with that being said, it seemed like there was actually very little time spent at the venue, that it was sort of backstage for as little as possible, after show, whisked immediately into the limo, to the plane, or, or to the hotel. Now, once that happened, one of the other realities of tour is that that's sort of when the partying happened, was away from the show, and that one of the main uh, aspects of being on tour with a band like Led Zeppelin is the fact that you got no sleep, ever. This is true. I, I think I averaged maybe 45 minutes to an hour of sleep per night for the better part of a month or five weeks. It's really true. And that, that's, that's a function of stress for the most part. And uh, when you talk about being on the road and partying, we would get backstage, and most bands, you know, most bands don't get back get arrive at a venue two, three, four hours before a show. You get there as late as possible, so as to spend as little time as possible uh, in a dressing room. You do the show, and then with someone like Led Zeppelin, we're out of there. We do what's called a runner, which means that... Uh, at the, at the very end of the show, all the tour personnel is loaded into limos. As soon as the last number is over, whether it's an encore or the regular set, uh, the band comes off stage, they put uh, robes on, they're loaded into the limos, loading dock door opens, and we're out of there. You know, it's very Elvis has left the building. And, and you know, the crowd may be still standing up applauding, waiting for an encore, we're on the plane ordering lobster. That's, that's the reality of, of how it was a lot of the time. Uh, but as far as uh, partying and all that, you know, the plane, the plane was a way to get from point A to point B. It wasn't party central. It was, it was, I used to love going on the plane because I could rest. You know, people would fall asleep on the plane. There's a photo of Bonzo sleeping, but that's what was great about the plane was you could stretch out on a couch if there was one available and sleep. Not, I could chop a bunch of lines or drink a bunch of booze or any of that. It's, you know, you relax and it's a way to get, it's an efficient way to get from point A to point B. 
Speaking of drinking booze, uh, how many people have seen this image before? Oh, one or two. <laughs> uh, you know, and in reference to the first image we showed of, of Robert and, and Jimmy sort of shoulder to shoulder rocking it, I mean, th there's a, you have a lot of iconic images. This is certainly, when it comes to your Led Zeppelin canon, this is certainly one of them. Do yeah. you, did you know at, at this time, or with the live shot, or maybe we'll take a look at the, the Stormtrooper shot, where, uh, this outfit that Jimmy wore for one show that you happen to be shooting at, did you know that I'm capturing magic right here? Not the slightest. Uh, I, you know, the story is that I, I was sitting to Jimmy's right. I had a, a... Sometimes you remember shooting a picture, and some, sometimes you don't. I, and I have no idea why certain moments are indelible in my memory and why others aren't. I do remember, had it not been a famous picture, I still would have remembered uh, shooting it. I was at Jimmy's right, I was talking to someone, he was on my left, I was talking to someone on my right. I had a Nikon with a 24 millimeter lens on it. I happened to turn to Jimmy to say something to him and I saw the bottle start to come up and I picked up my camera, focused, shot one frame. Forgot about it. No motor drive sequence. No, gee, thanks, Jimmy. Let me get that again vertically or anything. And I won't use the terms landscape or portrait, sorry. Um, I'm very old school. And uh, I forgot about it until I saw it on a proof sheet a couple of days later and then probably forgot about it again uh, until, until later on. Uh, I never had a sense that it was going to be an iconic photo. To me, it's I was doing my job. I'm I'm a fly on the wall. I'm a I'm a tr a, a self-trained photojournalist, but you 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 learn to be as invisible as possible and not become part of the story. You're telling a story. You're recording what's going on and. Uh, I, I, I didn't think, oh man, this is going to be iconic. You know, I hope he swigs the bottle, or thank God he swigged the bottle. I just shot the picture and moved on to the next thing. I guess just backing up ever so briefly, I mean, what I find interesting about this story and, and Led Zeppelin bringing you on is that they wanted, they, didn't, they were not happy with how they were being portrayed in the press, and so they brought you on to better portray them. And they took a very active role and looking at these proof sheets on a very regular basis. And I just feel like that's, that was sort of atypical of a, of a band. And then it plays to the point of that, you know, they, they were orchestrating their success. They were very conscious of it. But if you could just talk about why their consciousness of, of their band dynamic, what band members weren't being featured and right. all that. Well, uh, there was, uh, when I was hired to work for them, uh, it was ostensibly because the press needed new photos to run, uh, to give to magazines, newspapers, whomever. And um, there seemed to have, have been, uh, this was a win-win situation for the band where they could hire someone under their direction to shoot pictures, uh, give approvals to the photos so that, so that they knew what would be going out to the press generally. Um, and uh, it's a way to, control their images in the press while still being able to give 
one photo of the Chicago Sun-Times, something different to the LA Times, something different to the New York Times, uh, and, um, and to make sure that all band members are covered equally. Um, there was always uh, a, a kind of an undercurrent of uh, Jonesy and, and John Bonham not getting their faces in as many photos used by the press as Robert and Jimmy. And there's an interesting story that, that's told by Danny Goldberg in the book, which I, I don't want to you know, give the joke up, so to speak. But um, they were aware of how they were portrayed in the press. They were notorious for not doing a lot of interviews and not allowing a lot of photographers free reign. So uh, that's why I was hired. And, uh, you know, I was always told about things like, uh, you know, my, my kind of ground rules that didn't have to do with access. They had to do with crow's feet and little tummy and watch for this and watch for that. And um, uh, that's, those are the kind of things when editing the material day after day after day, and it was a lot to go through, that I was uh, told to be aware of um, when uh, making a, a, an edit for the band to see. I mean, I certainly have some more questions for you, but I figure you want to open up to the audience and see yeah, what... Yeah, I mean, uh, sure. Let her rip. You had all this amazing access and took all these incredible images. If you could share one of your favorite moments with the band uh, for you. What do you mean by favorite moments? Whether it was on stage, off stage, uh, back at a hotel, for you personally as an artist, what was uh, one of your favorite or most fulfilling moments? Well, um, it's not that they're favorite moments. They might have been surprising moments. Um, there's, uh, there's a photograph of, um, of uh, Jimmy, well, the whole band on stage, and I'm on Jimmy's side, and there's some dry ice. Um, you see the dry ice on, on the floor of the stage, and it's uh, Ed Roberts on the left of the frame and singing, and Jimmy's kind of looking at me, straight at me, with the guitar in his hand, but he's not playing. He's kind of dragging on a cigarette and just kind of looking at me. That photo, right after I took that photo, he came walking over to me and started to talk to me during, during the concert. And uh, there's a point in the song called No Quarter where the beginning is this kind of piano intro and Robert does, uh, I don't know, eight bar thing where he's singing and, uh, and, and Jimmy doesn't come in until later on in the song. And the guy starts coming over to talk to me. And, and this, is, this is not a usual thing that would happen with any guy in any band during a concert. And I, I thought, well, here it comes. I'm getting fired or, I'm, or something or what, what could it be? And um, he wanted to ask me about uh, if, if someone he saw in the front row uh, sitting with a bunch of girls happened to be the tour doctor, which it was. <laughs> and I, so I confirmed it. And, um, you know, I mean, things like that that would surprise me would happen. What was the deal with Dr. Larry? Who was that guy? Why did look, he only he had have a look one in first his name? bag, baby? He had a look in his bag. Hi, Neil. Hey. Um, how did you get your start in photography, and how did you get the job? 
uh, well, I got my start in photography um, when I was uh, in diapers, uh, relatively, when I was uh, 16, 17, and um, I'd been given a camera by, uh, by a relative, and photography became my hobby. I was very into music. Uh, you know, the nuclear bomb that went off in my brain was the Beatles being on the Ed Sullivan Show, as a lot of people my, my age felt uh, that same bomb go off. And um, basically, I used to take my camera to rock shows, which you could do back then in the late 60s, and no one questioned what was in your bag or how long that lens was or anything else. And uh, through a strange kind of series of, of uh, a little bit of a fluke series of events, I ended up, uh, a couple of buddies of mine uh, had, had been to a couple of shows at the Singer Bowl, actually, in Flushing Meadows. I grew up in Forest Hills. And uh, we took some prints over to uh, what we thought was the ticket office for this concert series. And uh, it turned out to be the promoter's office. We were hoping we could just get some free tickets to one of their shows. And uh, we were started getting let into a lot of shows. And I met uh, people who worked with... Um, in, in, the, in the burgeoning music press and a couple of people who had started their own rock and roll magazines and I started getting assignments and I guess people liked the, the, what I was doing and the thing kind of snowballed. You know, sometimes, sometimes the train leaves the station without you and you better get, stay on board because it's, it's leaving and uh, I, I don't know, it just, it just mushroomed and um, by the time I graduated high school in, dare I say it, June of 1970, um, I was already working in the rock and roll business. I moved to Los Angeles in 71, and let me tell you, it goes like that, and I'm sitting here talking to you guys now. That's how fast it seems to go. But uh, that's, that's how I got my start. I, it was very kind of organic and just happened. You know, when, when I started out, there was no such genre as music photography, or to use a term I abhor, rock photography. It was just photography. And uh, to that end, I, music was a passion, photography was a passion, so those two hobbies morphed into a super hobby. And here I am. Mr. Preston, yes. if you could address the challenges you had back then, today's digital cameras, you get thousands of images on a compact flash card, but you had only 36 exposures on a roll of film. And I see a lot of these images are backlit. What was the technical challenges <laughs> that you faced to have such beautifully exposed pictures? Well, they weren't all beautifully exposed. <laughs> that's, a bit, that's my dirty, nasty secret. Um, interestingly enough, my dad worked in, uh, on Broadway. Uh, he's still alive. He's 94, uh, 93. Sorry, Dad. I'll get the number right. But um, I grew up around stage lighting. And uh, for some reason, when I started shooting live concerts, I seemed to have an inherent knowledge of how to capture stage lighting properly on film. I don't know how it happened, other than it seemed to have been in my DNA somehow. Um, it's, 
it's it, it's not easy to do. It seemed to come second nature to me. When I look at today's digital cameras, and you know they do everything but cook an omelet for you, um, I, I'm I'm amazed. Digital cameras are great in low light. That's what I like about them. I don't care for the way digital pictures look, generally speaking, and I know you can put them through post-production in Adobe Lightroom and this one and that one. They don't have the, the feel of a, of a photograph shot on film to me, which is not to say they're not great uh, tools to use, but they are tools to use, and they're different tools. I like shooting on film. I still shoot on film. Shooting live performance photos, it, it, it's just something that I, it, it, was, it was an ability that I was born with. It's, it's not something I was taught or went to school with to learn. It just happened. Yeah, I wanted to know, uh, what's the, like, the pros and cons about being on a, like, a high energy tour like that? What is like the best things that ha like the the things that's like ah or the things that's really really good about it? Well, let's see. What should I tackle first? The pros or the cons? The pr look. The pros are look at what you have to work with. Uh, the cons are look at what you have to work with. <laughs> um, there's two ways to look at it. No, I'm mean, in all seriousness. The the positives are. I've got the, some of the greatest subjects in the world to shoot. Um, people are going to see this stuff. It's it's good for someone's career, you know, to be able to have that on a resume, obviously. But you got to you got to do the job. Um, the cons are no sleep, a lot of stress, a lot of traveling, and I believe that stress is the killer that will get to you quicker than any drugs or booze or any, you name it. Stress, stress is tough to manage. Um, having to be on call 24-7 with a band like this, those are all, that's the reality of, of working this kind of a job. On the other side of that, there's more pros. There's lots of girls around. <laughs> and that was always uh, a super pro for me. Um, but you're there to do a job, you're, and, and it's a difficult job. It's fun, but it's stressful, and at the end of the day, if you don't deliver the goods, you're out on your butt. So um, there's uh, a lot to deal with. At the end of four or five weeks with Led Zeppelin, I would literally sleep for a month. I kid you not. I remember staying at a friend of mine's house for a month, in New York, even though I lived in L.A., for some reason I stayed in New York for a month. I was too tired to go to the airport. <laughs> I mean, I was exhausted. And, uh, and a lot of rock tours are like that. Whenever you have to travel a lot, it's exhausting. You're on call all the time. You have strong personalities like these guys that you have to deal with. I'm getting tired just thinking about it. <laughs> so that's, those are some of the pros and cons. Great. Thanks, Neil. Everybody join me in thanking Neil Preston. So the book, Led Zeppelin, Sound and Fury, is available right now in the iBook store. Thank you again, Neil Preston, everybody. Come on, let's keep it going.